and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. Well, Cam, what do you call this mission? Operation question mark? <laughs> no, Operation exclamation mark. Ooh. No, but Cam, seriously, what are we talking about this week? Scott, we're going back to World War II with 1965's Operation Crossbow, starring Sophia Loren. Name in lights. This is a Sophia Loren vehicle. I want to make that very clear to everyone listening. This movie does not happen without Sophia Loren, and she is the shining star at the heart of this grand adventure. That's right. She's on every poster. She is in all of the marketing. Sophia Loren is the star of this film. I can confirm that. She's in every scene. (laughs) They should have called it Operation Sophia Loren, because that's what it is. Well, as you can see, we're we're making jokes about Sophia Loren here, and it will uh, become evident if you haven't watched the film as to why. But um, it's interesting that we're going back to a sort of man-on-a-mission film. We only recently covered The Eagle Has Landed. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there had been a big gap before we'd done Where Eagles Dare. So it's actually nice to go back to one of these World War II mission stories. Although this one definitely has a twist. Yeah, this was an interesting one to tackle. And I mean... I had never seen this movie before. I had no experience with it whatsoever. And I'm someone who's watched a lot of World War II movies. I mean, a lot, you know, well over a hundred. And I mean, when I would do my, you know, watch lists of World War II movies to see, this one had never popped up before. It didn't really occur to me to add it to the uh, list until I was Googling around. I think in the wake of us doing Where Eagles Dare, I was searching World War II spy films this one popped up and I was like, huh, how have I never seen this or heard of this over my many years of World War II adventure film watching? So here we are at last. It's actually interesting as well, because at the time of recording this, uh, the film had only recently played on on British TV. Oh, It's actually something we're still playing. Uh, And I had seen bits of it, it turns out, which we'll we'll get into. But uh, for those who haven't seen the film, Let's tackle the letterbox.com synopsis. No, no, Scott. Operation Letterboxd synopsis. <laughs> Alrighty. Operation Crossbow. Sabotage of Hitler's ingenious weapons of mass destruction, the V1 and V2 rockets. Allied agents infiltrate the Nazi rocket complex at Pinamunda in order to obtain their secrets and sabotage the plant. The film alternates between the German developments of the V-1 and V-2 missile rockets, with a German car speaking their own language, and the discovery by British intelligence of the weapon. That's a strange one, isn't it? It feels more of a historical breakdown than an actual plot synopsis. Quite truncated as well. It's like, duh, there's no, like It feels like it should be punctuated in different places. Maybe I'm just not very good at reading. Well, I would also say some of the people that write these synopses for Letterboxd aren't very good at writing, so... <laughs> or it's a combination of the both, I don't know. And he's read my writing, so yeah, that's mm. that's pretty damning on them. That's right, although you write a lot of these Letterboxd synopses, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was me. This is your hobby in your off time. <laughs> <laughs> that and uh, putting pictures of Sophia Loren on films that she's not actually in. You're like Blues Brothers 2000 in this <laughs> madcap adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Sophia Loren stars as. <laughs> um, 
Well, I we'll probably get into the Sophia Loren of it all in a bit, but uh, Cam, I'm interested to see how this one came to be. Yeah, so this was a project overseen by mega producer Carlo Ponti, and this guy has a lot of credits to his name, but he was really big at an exciting time in cinema where you had a lot of foreign films that were really cracking through, and he was at the forefront of this movement. Um, he was a producer on Fellini's La Strada. He did a Clio from five to seven. He produced Two Women, um, the movie that won Sophia Loren the Best Actress Oscar. He also did Contempt. So like a lot of these art house classics that we look at now, he was behind. And um, this was a project that he was um, pushing. And this is also an era where there's like a lot of World War II adventure movies. It just makes sense to be making these types of movies. And he brought in director Michael Anderson. Uh, Michael Anderson is one of these constantly working guys no one really recognizes the name as much like he's not someone who's gone into the hallmarks as the great you know one of the great directors of his time the way that some of the others we've tackled on the show are but he's pretty prolific he did movies like the dam busters which was hugely influential on star wars he did the oscar best picture winning um around the world in 80 days which is not one of the best best picture winners but it's very big. It's a very big movie. Um, he also did The Wreck of the Merry Deer with um, Gary Cooper and Charlton Heston, a project that when I saw that on his filmography, I'm like, why do I know the name of this? Like, why is this sticking out so much? I've never seen this movie. I read the synopsis. It means next to nothing to me. But for some reason, I couldn't figure it out. And it had a Spy Hards connection. And that's why it was leaping out. Go on. It was a project that Alfred Hitchcock was going to do and couldn't crack the script. And so he did North by Northwest instead. So I probably referenced that film back when we did, you know, episode two of this podcast on North by Northwest. That was so long ago. I feel so old now. <laughs> I know, like, it was the sort of thing I'm like, wow, no wonder I barely remember. That was an eternity ago, especially in COVID time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, as far as the film goes, I have no idea on that film. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And he would go on later to do a couple of movies that I have a certain amount of fondness for. He did Logan's Run, very influential sci-fi film. He also did Orca, the Jaws knockoff about the killer, killer whale. And uh, that movie is really goofy. And it's something that I get a lot of enjoyment out of. Well, we we all know your uh, strange relationship with seafaring creatures, Cam. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I'd never heard of the Killer Whale film. Oh, really? You've never heard of Orca with uh, Richard Harris? No, no. I mean, is it the same plot as Jaws? Is it the whole like Amity Beach stuff? And uh, it has a little more of a tie to like Moby Dick. It's a whale on a revenge mission, and the, the uh, whales on the revenge mission. Okay. Yes, the whales on a revenge mission. So it's Jaws four here. We're talking Jaws four. It is. Yeah, it's a newborn is killed. And actually, I don't even think it was born at the time. It was like, yeah, it was a very ugly. It's a very disgusting scene that I don't really want to uh, recount. But um, there is a scene where a whale takes down a house. And for that alone, it's worth watching. <laughs> That's some like Sharknado level nonsense right there. It's a crazy movie. And Michael Anderson's final screen credit is also an insane movie that anyone around our age, they probably haven't seen it. But they know the image. His final, you know, motion picture that played in theaters, he did like a TV movie or an animated thing later. But like his final major motion picture was The New Adventures of Pinocchio. The Jonathan Taylor Thomas Pinocchio movie 
that has the most horrifying depiction of Pinocchio ever committed to screen. It will give you nightmares. Google it right now. It is horror fuel. Well, I need to sort of pick apart your point first because you said people in our age range and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm Cam, I, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> there's, a, there's a difference in age here, man. I don't, I, don't, I don't think you should be dragging me down like that. I think it should be as much of a touchstone for you as it is for me. I actually don't know what you're talking about. I'm okay. being honest as well. Yeah. It was from 1996. Really? I should know then. 1996. Yeah, oh. North by Northwest reference as well. It had uh, Martin Lando play Geppetto. Okay. Uh, that's a that's a strange credit. It's, it's all strange that I don't know it by the sounds of it. It feels like something I should have burnt into my brain. Mm-hmm. It's like Casper territory, and I loved Casper. It was not a hit movie. Like, it was a real uh, box office bomb, but it's just like the image of Pinocchio was so terrifying that it got a lot of traction, and I still see people post it here and there online. Oh my god. <laughs> That's horrifying. Why is this a film? I've never seen it, but I probably should before I die, right? Oh my god, Martin Landau is like a creep. But that's not the problem. Oh, oh my god. Oh, there's a picture I just found I will be posting on our social media um, of Pinocchio and he's, he's, his mouth is, is covered in... Okay. I don't know what Chappelle has been up to, but uh, we'll leave it at that. You agree, though. It's terrifying looking, right? That's that's horrifying. I would sooner watch that Tom Hanks film on the train than see this. Yeah. Because that's a real puppet, I assume. That's Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm going to take this off my screen now. That's quite... That's nightmare <laughs> fuel. Oh, my God. Thanks for that, Cam. <laughs> so maybe not the most um, glorious of endings for the directorial career of Michael Anderson, but he was a big name at the time with a long filmography. So there's plenty to dig into there if you are interested in his work. Um, I, I've really sold it from Orca to Pinocchio, but there's a lot more good out there. <laughs> and um, the story credits on this is kind of weird because it's credited just as a story to um, two it- Italian writers. You have Dulio Coletti, who was an Italian writer-director, and you have Vittoriano Petrilli, who was a writer. And they had written a lot of Italian films, and in the case of Coletti, directed a lot of Italian films. But somewhere along the line, they must have pitched this story or something to Carlo Ponti, who saw it more as a big production. That's my only guess, like how this really happened, because they did not write the screenplay. They must have had an idea for maybe a smaller movie that ended up being blown up into a big budget um, production. That's that's my best guess. Does that make sense? It, it makes sense. Uh, it's strange that there's no firm history on this film. You'd think it had been something that had been explored more. Yeah, Operation Crossbow, not the greatest for um, a wealth of research in terms of its development and creation. Okay. Well, um, but it's got three screenwriters on it, though. Yeah, so these two just did the story, but then it was handed over to two writers primarily and, um, you know, before production. Ray Rigby, who was mostly a TV writer, he'd done an episode of The Avengers. He would later in his career um, write the play, The Hill, that would be turned into the movie The Hill starring Sean Connery, and he wrote the screenplay for that as well. So that was near the end of his career, but earlier on he was mostly a TV guy. They also brought in Derry Quinn, who was also mostly a TV guy. And they hammered out a screenplay, but it wasn't really in working order. So at the last minute, they brought in Emmerich Pressburger, who used the pseudonym Richard Imrie on the finished film. 
And Emmerich Pressburger, if the name rings a bell, another Spy Hearts connection, we tackled him when we tackled The Spy in Black. He was the writer of that film. And he was also a writer-director who did movies like The 49th Parallel, The Red Shoes, Black Narcissus. He was an amazing filmmaker, highly influential. But in the 1960s, he'd actually fallen on hard times. Um, He was known for his extravagant spending and had kind of put himself in the hole after writing a lot of great films. And so he was brought in to rewrite this movie just a few weeks before shooting. And he said he was delivering new material often mere hours before shooting. So like this thing was really assembled piece by piece with frantic rewriting by him. And he chose the pseudonym um, of Richard Emery to protect his reputation. He didn't want to have his name slapped on the poster. He wanted to kind of do it on the down low. Okay, well, I have two questions about that then. Mm -hmm. The first question is more, if you're bringing in Pressburger last minute, and this film, which we'll get into, is half in German. Do you think he's writing it in German or is he writing it in English and then the actors are just translating it for them? I would say the latter. It's being written in English. Hmm. I wonder if that loses something along the way. I would imagine, well, you know, in this in these days, 1960s, I don't know. I think it's all being written in English. I think nowadays you would have at least a German consultant who would be work, maybe working with the writer, exchanging notes back and forth. But in 65, I have my doubts. And the other question was more about just using the pseudonym and not wanting to be on the poster. Now, you haven't spoken about the box office of the film yet, so maybe that's the reason why. But why is he already saying he doesn't want to be involved with the film? before it's released. I think when you have written and co-directed some of the greatest films of all time, you have a very, I mean, when you say Emmerich Pressburger, that name really meant something. He was considered a fantastic writer. The idea you're coming in to do punch-up on a um, sort of B-level World War II film, and I don't say that in a disparaging way, just when you compare it to some of the big World War II films of the era, like The Great Escape or something like that, that's an A picture. That is a top quality director. That is all of Hollywood's talents coming together. This one was a little more on a the next level down. It's still got a lot of talent attached, but it's not quite at the top tier level in terms of its, you know, in terms of being a production. So I just think like for him, it, he would see it as a bit of a step down, especially because it's like kind of just doing cleanup duty. I, I just find that a bit bizarre. I understand trying to protect your legacy. I suppose is the way of looking at it. But at the same time, I never understand those people who are embarrassed about doing a job it's like hey i'm emirate Pressburger, and welcome to mcdonald's what can i get you today like, mm. hey the guy's making money he's earning a paycheck what's the big deal but i suppose if you're one of these you know volatile hollywood types is a bit worried about your reputation then maybe that's why i wonder if it's also like if you're frantically rewriting the day of in the back of your mind are you expecting this to be good like mm. at a certain point is it just a cash job that you are not the most confident in what the end results will be. So you're like hedging your bets that it's not going to turn out great. So I don't really want my name slapped on this thing. You, you, you can only polish a turd so much. It's still a turd at the end mm-hmm. of the day. But then, hmm. Do you think he just thought it was a bad script and he couldn't he couldn't fix it? And so he just did that. More Less, less to do with the legacy and more to do with the fact that he just thought this was a, a lost cause, but I'll do what I can. I think that may have been an aspect of it that it was just like, they're just trying to crank this thing out. Um, I'll just do my rewrites and call it a day. And I mean, when you look at the guy's past work, 
it's very artistically ambitious stuff. It's films that have had a long legacy with film lovers, um, very cutting edge ahead of their time in a lot of ways. I just wonder if for him, this was kind of like, this really was an assignment. This was not like a passion project at all. What are you talking about? Getting guys to do fake parachute scenes is the height of cinema. You know what? I got good things to say about that scene. So yeah, same actually. I, 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 I'm taking the Mickey out of him doing this in terms of the screenwriting, but I actually have a lot of nice things to say about this film. But yeah, we'll get to that. Do you have any more for us? Yeah. So Sophia Loren, we highlighted her. Um, this movie was sold as a Sophia Loren film. You and I thought it was a Sophia Loren film going into it. She's all over the posters. First build in the movie. Uh, she has really one extended scene in the movie and that's about it she shows up about i think like 47 minutes in or something like that and how this happened was she was actually married to the producer carlo ponti and she was considered a huge box office draw at the time and so they thought we can get her into this movie and that will really boost up its international appeal and we could draw a lot of box office with this so it was a real mismarketing job, or maybe that's not the right word. Maybe they actually marketed it correctly. I don't know. We'll talk about that when we do box office results. But like, I think it was pretty much just a Sophia Loren will get people to show up. So let's really highlight her in all of our marketing, despite the fact she's barely in the movie. Well, I mean, she's on the marketing for this week's episode for us. It's just her everywhere on the picture. Exactly. Exactly. It's Sophia Hards. <laughs> And I looked it up. She was actually married to Carlo Ponti for 50 years. So good for the two of them. They made it yeah. work. Hmm. Hey, yeah. he, he, he made her the star of uh, his films. So that's one way to keep him on track. Yeah, they were together until he passed away. So there's a real hmm. Hollywood love story there. You don't often find that, actually. No, no. They don't I... often stay together. They often falls apart. Yeah, I actually was very cynical when I saw the trivia note that, you know, she was married to him. I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, how many marriages were there, that sort of thing. And I'm like, oh, wow, how sweet. What a wonderful Hollywood love story. Look at you throwing stones when, uh, look at our love lives. Well, sure. But, uh, you know, <laughs> so often when we talk about these movies where there's some sort of trivia note like that, you look up the end results and it's not the happiest. <laughs> that's just Hollywood, yeah, that's folks. True. Yeah. And I should say, I'm in a very long-term relationship and actually very happy, but whatever. It made sense for the joke. Yeah. Um, and uh, Sophia Loren, I only really found one comment from her regarding this movie, and that's that she really didn't work with anyone who worked on the movie because she, again, is in one scene, really. So, you know, she works with George Papard and, you know, a couple other people, but that's about it. She didn't meet the majority of the cast. Again, not a surprise at all. Um. So after the initial release of this movie, it didn't really grab audiences and MGM freaked out and they changed the name of the film. So we had Operation Crossbow and they were like, okay, people might think it's a medical film. That's clearly why they're not showing up. <laughs> I, I read this bit of trivia. I don't often look into trivia, but I read this bit of trivia and I found it absolutely hilarious because I think back to America renaming things, you think to License to Kill. Yeah. When it was licensed revoked, and then apparently the Americans would understand the word revoked. And then Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, as we know it as, which we've mentioned before on the podcast, was renamed was it the Sorcerer's Stone in the, yeah. in North America? Or no, in, in the USA, I should say. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but then this was the great spy mission in the USA, I think. Yeah. 
I don't know if they got a release over here as the Great Spy Mission. Well, in the 1960s, you would have had platform releases. So it would have opened a few markets and then they would spread from there. So it would be partway through the release. They would have changed the name. I think Operation Crossbow is a much cooler title. I agree 100%. The Great Spy Mission is very generic. Um, and I don't think it really helped the movie at all. Although I, I am fascinated in their minds what Operation Crossbow as a medical drama means. See, I'm not, I'm not up on my like medical drama films. Do they exist? Medical drama films? Um, you see, nowadays it's has there been an ER film? Well, that's the thing. Nowadays it's TV, right? Like shows like yeah. ER, and then you know, in the '90s you had like Chicago Hope that ran for a while as well, or House. Yeah. Um, I'm racking my brain. Have I seen many medical dramas of? Well, older you're days forgetting, Cam. You're forgetting a very important film to us. What's that? The venereal disease film. Oh, that must have been in the hospital. That's right. That was on the box office like top ten for the year or something like that. So sure, yeah. There's an audience for it, guys. Apparently, hospital procedural films. Yeah, I clearly have not watched a lot of 1960s medical dramas. The only movie that's popping to mind for some reason is The Doctor, starring William Hurt. But that's the 90s, so I don't know. I, I mean, don't look at me. I'm, I'm the moron around here, so I won't have an answer for you. Honestly, I have no good answers to how you would. Make it how how anyone would go actually, yeah. That that makes me think of a a, a medical procedure. Who knows? Was there like a, a test done? Some some sort of test audience, and they were like, mm, medical procedure. Yeah, gotta get rid of that title. <laughs> that is the sort of like studio thinking that I love when you dig them up many 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 years later because it just sounds insane. And believe me, people, things have not changed. They still make these insane decisions. So um, yeah, they went with the name Great Spy Mission for a little while. They also sold it um, as codename Operation Crossbow as well in some markets, which... Well, now you're just confusing everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they were like, well, codename really sounds spy-ish, but codename Operation Crossbow, that's getting a little wordy, folks. Well, it doesn't even make sense because the Operation title is Crossbow. <laughs> you can't have a codename... And it's like having a folder and a folder in your computer. It doesn't make any sense. Why yeah. would you do this? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I have a lot of questions about this film. So that, doesn't, that yeah. doesn't surprise me. So the movie cost $12 million. It was actually quite expensive. And mm. um, most of the money went to effects. But it did have one of the largest ever sets built at MGM British Studios. So in terms of, you know, being a British production, it was actually fairly sizable. The uh, so as I said, twelve million dollar budget, and it brought in the only number I could find was the domestic numbers. Um, it made three point seven million domestic. So when you say domestic, th this was obviously a British film. Is that domestic UK or domestic? No, US because MGM's releasing it right. That's a US studio, so it's going to be North America. Right. Yeah, that's not great. No. Uh, so it would have been just outside the top 20 for the year. Um, allegedly, it was a big hit in the UK. I could not find any numbers for UK box office, but it also doesn't shock me if it's a huge you know, British production that it would do well in the UK. As I said, it, it played just the other day on, on ITV, which is uh, one of the main terrestrial channels. It's not cable. It's like one of the free channels everyone can get. Mm-hmm. And I was speaking to someone on Twitter about it recently, uh, Ian, actually. We've heard on his show, Cult Connections. And he fondly remembers watching this on several bank holidays here in the UK. So 
it it obviously has a following and and is one of those sort of go-to bank holiday films and i would then argue that its following is probably in the uk because i don't think it has much of a reputation in north america at all well given what you just said no um but, but then that that's totally like us to be covering a film that no one's heard of yep that's classic spy hearts right there folks we'll probably release this on like you know one of the James Bond films will come out or something just so we really mess up the marketing too. <laughs> no kidding. So the top three for this year, we tackled it very recently when we did Thunderball. Number one was The Sound of Music. Number two is Dr. Zhivago, which actually was also produced by Carlo Ponti. So he had a pretty big year for major productions because uh, Dr. Zhivago was not a small film. And uh, number three was Thunderball. Um, also on the list at number 19 was The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. And then lower down, quite a bit lower, was The Ipcris File, which was also a hit, but was much cheaper film to make. Just not with me. <laughs> and my only real footnote on this, other than apparently it plays on bank holidays in the UK, which I really didn't know, but um, in 2011, they made a documentary about Operation Crossbow, the actual operation, not the movie. But it was narrated by Samantha Bond, who plays Monty Penny in the Brosnan era. So we've got a bit another uh, Bond crossover there. We're really uh, trying to flesh this one out, aren't we? <laughs> it's all I got, Scott. It's all I got. <laughs> we'll have nothing to talk about otherwise. Oh I was God. planning to just come in and read the biography of uh, Sophia Loren, but I realized watching the movie last night, that was completely irrelevant. <laughs> I mean, you could read her lines from the film and we'd be done in five minutes. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen, to the shelters. Cam, I think it's time we tackle this film. And we've uh, we, we've made a lot of jokes about it so far, but I, I, I haven't heard what you think of this film, which is really fun because you've never seen it before. This is the first watch. Same for me. Um, so I'm going to throw it to you first. What did you think of Operation Codename The Great Spy Crossbow? <laughs> Starring Sophia Loren. Yes, um, so I remember when I added this to the list, our master list of movies to cover for the future, and I looked at the YouTube trailer, and but only quickly. Like I don't generally like to sit and watch, especially old trailers. They're basically just run-throughs of the plot. Like the people complain about trailers now that could be spoilery, but in the old days they're just like, eh, show most of the movie in you know two minutes. And so I just kind of skipped around, and I got the vibe. It was kind of a crazy World War II adventure along the lines of like where Eagles Dare. And I was like, oh, man, I can't wait. This is going to be like kind of a B-level where Eagles Dare that's really goofy and over the top. That is not the movie I got at all. And I got to say, I, I enjoyed this movie. I don't think it's great. And I'll have some, I think, criticisms about how well it holds together as sort of a tense spy adventure. I think it's falls. I think it falls victim quite a lot to men in room talking scenario, which is often common with some of these productions where the exposition is consistent and extravagant. Like there is a lot of it. They are hiring some of the greatest working actors to sit in a room and deliver exposition for profound amounts of time. But what this movie did was it showed me things that I hadn't really seen before. And I always appreciate that. You know, you referenced the parachute jumping sequence earlier where they're practicing on how to, you know, land behind enemy, you know, territory via parachute. And they're doing it through this mechanical setup through pulleys. And I'm like, I've never seen this in a movie. I really like this. And it did a few things like that throughout where I kind of perked up and thought like, wow, this is really cool. 
I liked a lot of the missile testing stuff that we see early in the movie. So I would say overall, my thoughts, just to kind of sum up, was it's not great. Like, I think, you know, Where Eagles Dare or even The Eagle Has Landed are better films. But I enjoyed this movie. I think there's genuine moments here that fans of the genre could appreciate. And I kind of understand why it doesn't have necessarily the most profound legacy. But it's one, I think, that was genuinely interesting to watch. I was I was in one of those situations when I was watching this film the first time uh, where my opinion changed the second viewing. So where I sit now with this film is I'm surprised it cost so much to make that. You telling me that blew me away, actually. I, I didn't really <laughs> see that on the screen, I have to say. Yeah. And I agree with you. I, I like some of those interesting things it's doing, like the, the test piloting of the V1s. And I quite like uh, procedural stuff. So some of the the plans coming together, the researching the rocket, some of the spy work was good. I, I enjoyed that. What I didn't enjoy was some of the acting and some of the characters in the film. I think it was missing, like you said, a, a tense spy plot. There's a spy story in there, but I was never really sort of enthralled because I knew, again, same as the eagle has landed, I knew the outcome. Yeah. America didn't get obliterated by a rocket. So, and it was not one of those like alternate universe films because they weren't really doing that. Mm -hmm. So I never really felt that tension, especially towards the end. Now, I mean, my enjoyment was also propped up by some some interesting stunt casting. Uh, I I had never seen Robert Picard in anything other than that episode of The Next Generation. So uh, that was absolutely fascinating. Oh my god, that never occurred to me. And you speak about Robert Picard, who plays what? Yeah, yeah Jean Luc Picard's brother in the episode "Family" from TNG. It's a very acclaimed episode. Who was he in the movie? That never popped out to me. What do you mean? Who was he in the movie? He's he's Captain Phil Bradley. He's the other spy, the the one with the cane, oh who my has the mustache god. and then shaves the mustache off. I never realized that. I did not make the connection at all. Wow. I mean, as this now made the knock list because of this uh, this revelation. <laughs> well, we'll have to see. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Doesn't look good, guys. Um, no, I mean, to, to summarize, I think it was an interesting film. There were some bits I really liked about it. There's some bits I didn't like about it. And I don't think the budget was on the screen for me, mm -hmm. personally. Uh, I quite like seeing these real-life stories uh, and I like seeing bits about the Blitz. You know, I, I saw you know, in this film, you see Battersea Power Station. I used to live around the corner from there. It was nice seeing those bits. And I, I know a lot about the Blitz and the Blitz London as well, V1 and V2 rockets. It was interesting to see that stuff brought to life on the big screen. But then there's all these, as you said, Cam, men in rooms talking. And, you know, we recently covered Bridge of Spies and we spoke to its writer, Matt Charman. And you asked him a question about how do you make two men in the room talking interesting or two people in the room talking interesting and he he explained how how he tried to do it and we think he did a good job but in this one i'm not sure they did it's very just flat exposition a lot of the time like you have amazing actors like trevor howard for example or john mills showing up or richard johnson and they're just gathered around a table exchanging information like they don't really have characters Trevor Howard pops a little more playing sort of the academic who's trying to determine whether or not, you know, they're looking at missiles or they're looking at balloons. Um, he has a little bit of a quirky personality, but in terms of actual characteristics, 
they have none. They're just guys who are mouthpieces for information. And their roles are essentially what, if you were to watch this movie made now, most of this information would be doled out either via some sort of voiceover at the top or even just text that the audience reads. You know, the Germans are working on V1 and V2, you know, rockets and, you know, flying bombs. That is what's going on. Continue with the spy story. Whereas here, you get a solid half hour of these guys just talking around tables about what's going on. And it, I mean, they do intersperse that with actual, and this is some of the things I find interesting with that this sort of dueling story that this film has going for it. You do have the the, the allies, it's, it's the British basically, uh, working together to put the spies in the field. You do also have scenes of the German research facility in Pinamonde actually doing the research on the V1 rocket and troubleshooting some of its problems and getting it up in the air. Um, this film doesn't really spoon feed you any information. You kind of need to know what's going on in the war at that point. I mean, you know the D-Day landings have happened, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily tell you where the war is and how how badly it's going for Germany. Because by the point the V1 rockets are being launched, the Germans are on the back foot. Mm-hmm. You know, they're basically behind their lines in Germany. They've they've lost France more or less. So they are starting to try anything, much like the situation in the Eagle has landed. Um, but yeah, I found all that sort of secondary story of Germany quite interesting. Yeah. And I'm a little confused because like um, the events of the actual crossbow mission mm. um, took place between um, June of 44 into about March, late March of 45. But the um, facility you referred to in Pinamunde was bombed by the British in 43. Yeah. So I got a little confused about the timeline of this movie because they establish it very much as this victorious, you know, ally uh, assault at the end of the movie. But uh, I don't know that that works time-wise. No, I, I think there's some flaws in the actual history of this because there wasn't a big boy rocket they were working on to attack New York. That was completely made up. Mm-hmm. They The V1s were already in the air and the V2s were being used. And then Pena Monday was was attacked. If that if if it was attacked in forty three, then that was the end of Operation Crossbow. But that was that's all Operation Crossbow was in reality was the spy plot to figure out what the Germans were doing with their V one and V twos and take it down. And it resulted in the bombing of Pena Monday. Yeah, but there was like a huge facility where they were also creating them in Nordhausen, um, where like thousands of prisoners died building this facility, and I. I got the sense that like the facility we saw in the movie seemed more modeled on maybe what that was than the original one. Perhaps. I mean, I yeah. I had to go do some research after the first viewing just to sort of get the timeline sorted out in my head because the film doesn't really give you that. But is it is it really necessary? I don't think it's necessary because it's playing that whole men on a mission sort of adventure feel. Like you're you're not showing up at this movie for a history lesson. And I want to just right now apologize to all World War II historians who are listening to this and are pulling out their hair listening to us. Uh, we are not historians. We're doing the best we can with the information we have at hand. Um, I was uh, going to the um, uh, Richard Overy's book, The Second World War II, The Complete Illustrated History. Um, gives a pretty good layout of the war, but it, not with the complexities that maybe historians would bring to it. And Cam obviously needs pictures for whenever he does any sort of historical readings. There's a reason we do movies week to week and not books. Mm. 
yeah, we we'd be screwed. We'd be screwed. But yeah, I I was just using Google, so I you know I I apologize as well for if we have got the facts wrong. And by all means, let us know what the correct course of events was. But the point being, this film does stray off of historical accuracy, and I don't think that's particularly a bad thing. I think it gives it a little bit of room to play in because even at the end of the film, you know, spoiler alert, everyone dies. In, on the spy mission and then Richard Johnson's character say to I believe it's Winston Churchill you know we'll never know the names of these spies and it, it just gives that sort of you know this could have happened you'll never know about it air to it which is nice yeah it's the type of movie that's made as a grand entertainment it's not made as a history lesson I think you know some people get frustrated with movies like this but I have a little more of a different attitude towards them which is the movie is very clearly pitched as an adventure so if you watch this movie and it makes you interested in the events, it's done its job. You're going to go and look into what Crossbow actually was. But if you're just looking for a adventure film, it works on that level. So you'll walk out happy. Well, I, I think I want to bring up some questions I have about the film. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest ones I have is I've got this written down as a plus and a negative. I'm interested in what you think. And that is the fact that half of this film is actually in German. Yeah, because... Um, we've done a few German movies that we did, or not German films, but movies with Germans in them. I think of, obviously, The Eagle Has Landed very recently where they were all speaking English and you have Michael Caine, the most German actor of all time, <laughs> you know, <laughs> speaking in his classic native German tongue. Whoa, Cam, Cam, you're sounding too German right now. Please <laughs> rein it in. He sounded about as German as Donald Sutherland sounded Irish. Yeah. So, um... <laughs> uh here maybe just because i've been brought up on movies where it is subtitled german like they were actually respectful enough to actually keep the language mm. I, I feel more at home in this than i do with um the accents or you know as so often the case where they gave them like i i, I mentioned it in eagle is landed where they would give um you know german soldiers and stuff vaguely british accents like it's like that just means you know, they're German, like to North American audiences, that was like a shorthand. But I, I think this is far more effective and feels more authentic. See, I, I liked it from the sense of, you know, you're getting close to real German. These aren't German actors. These are people who speak German, who I think are mostly European and British actors. But I was the question I had for you was, do you think this is one of the reasons why people didn't necessarily turn up for this film? is because of this unapproachability. Because not everyone wants to come to the cinema and look at subtitles for half of the film. Yeah, um, that could have been a part of it because I think audiences... Although, you know, it's weird because this is an era where a lot of art house stuff is crossing over. A lot of European films are crossing over to North American screens. And so it kind of became cool to see some of these films, which would have been all subtitled. So I'm wondering also if people are just more gradually getting more comfortable with subtitles um i wonder more so if this movie just feels boy maybe a little old-fashioned when you compare it to some of the things you know thunderball opens this year like there's kind of this push towards what's going to lead into a bigger influence of european films on american films or british films um and when i say european i mean more like the italian and the french films mm -hmm. um I just wonder if it felt a little too old school um, at its time. Well, it, I mean, it, I've forgotten that this came out the same year as Thunderball. 
it really doesn't feel like the same year. No. You compare to the spectacle and the sort of bombastic nature of Thunderball, this is a very, very slow film. Yeah, and it's opening also, you know, against stuff like Sound of Music. It's just like, I don't know that this movie offers like the crowd-pleasing sort of delights that some of these bigger movies did of the era. Um, and it doesn't feel as ambitious as like a Dr. Zhivago. So I just wonder if kind of the appetite for World War II adventures was waning, even though it's only a couple years after The Great Escape. But then like the next decade, The Eagle Has Landed came out and that did moderately okay. Yeah, yeah, but maybe you needed a little bit of distance, perhaps. Sure. I, I would I would also argue that it seems like if the studio is changing the name three different times, the marketing was probably pretty poor. And they probably didn't have much faith in it, given what yeah. Pressburger did and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, hmm. Well, one thing I liked about the film is the fact that basically anyone can die. Yeah. You have a lead character played by uh, Tom Courtney. And you, you think he's... He's one of the POV characters in the film. He's he's basically there with your lead man played by George Papard. And then he's he's killed at like the fifty minute mark, quite brutally. Yeah, you have that moment where they're going to parachute in and <laughs> George Papard and Tom Courtney parachute in and they're suddenly alerted via radio, like, cancel the mission. One of the guys, the alter egos they're gonna use, the alter names of deceased um, you know, uh Dutch and German citizens are one of them is wanted for murder. <laughs> it's like, oops. <laughs> and Tom Courtney gets the short straw and winds up being the guy who's wanted for murder. And you get some really intense interrogation scenes. You have this character played by Anthony Quayle, who I believe was in The Eagle Has Landed as well. His name mm -hmm. jumps out to me. He plays Bamford, who is a German spy who's posing as um, you know, a British soldier when we first meet him. And he becomes like the antagonist of the film as he circles back to Germany. He's able to pick these guys out. And you have a great scene where he's interrogating the Tom Courtney character and trying to get him to break, to just admit you are, you know, a allied soldier. And he never does. And he gets shot, you know, just coldly in the streets for it. But what a great little character journey for someone who in a different film would have just been like, you know, the second or third banana of the crew. You would have had George Papard and um, Jeremy Kemp as sort of the main guys. And you would have had Tom Courtney as like, you know, the third guy. But here you get a really fantastic send off to that character. And uh, this is one of the bits of the film I enjoyed, apart from the fact that this, the feel of anyone can die, because I mean, we'll get to the feel of Lorenz character in a minute. But you see this character played by Anthony Quayle in the in sort of a briefing at the beginning and that's it he's just kind of there for a couple of minutes and you almost forget about him and then you see him in this german police station and you go oh sh you know yeah shiitake mushrooms this is <laughs> this is bad stuff like he could get caught and then you know tom Courtney's character is caught and soon sentenced to death but given plenty of opportunity to you know to give up and but then also wind it back a little bit Tom Courtney has been arrested because, as you said, the, the person he's pretending to be was wanted for murder. But then the police gave him one last chance. Mm -hmm. They said, right, we need, you to, we need scientists right now. Hitler needs scientists. We're going to send you down to work on this rocket. Stay out of trouble. They're walking him out the police station. Who walks by? Anthony Quayle. He's like, ah, oh, no. 
That's a spy. And this guy's life is once again turned upside down in the space of two minutes. And that, for me, was quite interesting storytelling. And that brought me back up after the interesting Sophia Loren turn. Yeah, I thought, like, Tom Courtney was really strong with this character. And he felt much more authentic to me than George Papard's um, Curtis character. Like... George Papard is the movie star character. We mm -hmm. first meet him, you know, hitting on two women in the back of a car. He's just like the swaggering GI coming in to take part in this mission. Whereas like when I look at the Tom Courtney ones, and even to a certain degree, the um, Jeremy Kemp, um, Captain Bradley character, they feel like a little more like human beings going through this experience. Well, yeah, you think it might just be how Tom Courtney's playing it, but he is quite a slender man. And you know he's he's playing this meek person. You know when he's doing the parachute stuff we were talking about earlier, he was very nervous about it and, and didn't feel very confident. And then when he arrives in in Germany, he's trying to hide and he's he feels a bit unsure of himself. He doesn't want to be a spy. And and then he's he's caught and you can see like you're rooting for him. You want him to survive. So you're saying hey, give it up. Just just give yourself up. Don't die. But he holds through even to the last minute where he's you know he's been beaten up to the inch of his life and they say right we're going to kill you now last chance and he's just he keeps his cover he says something in german and they go and anthony quayle's character goes well sorry and then they shoot him yeah and it's because it's like a adventure film you have that moment of like he's gonna be saved somehow he's gonna get out of this like there is a tension to what that character goes through that is often absent from the rest of the spy adventure like it feels like this is where they really hone in on what makes some of these spy adventures so compelling well speaking of absent from the rest of the spy adventure <laughs> i think uh -huh. it's time we talk some more about to sophia loren can we talk about her long enough that it equals her screen time <laughs> i want more i want more sophia loren in this episode than in the film yeah um I, what a weird thing! I when you this was by the way, guys. This was a this was a Cam pick this film, mm -hmm. and he's like Scott Sophia Loren's in it. I was like, okay. I mean, I don't know much about Sophia Loren, but I know she's a movie star, beautiful woman. Okay, great. And then she's not there for forty minutes, but she turns up and gives a, a, a not a great performance. Personally, I I don't really rate what she did in this film. And then she's very quickly assassinated. Let's just say the Spymaster interview with Sophia Loren about this film would be very short. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. That, uh, I would love for that to have happened, though. <laughs> it would devolve into questions about the catering. <laughs> yeah. What was the weather like when you shot that one scene that day? <laughs> so, like... Okay, what can I say that's like kind about this scene? Well, look, Sophia Loren is a great actress. So she like commits to the scene. Like she's really strong, I think, through her moments here. And really what's happened is she shows up at this hotel where George Papard's character is staying. And she is the wife of the man he's imposing. Um, and I, I thought there was actually kind of a good moment where they are um, in the room together and the authorities, the German authorities come in. And the way that they have to kind of work around George Papard not wanting to reveal who he is and finally admitting it just in a moment where they have their backs turned and he can cover her mouth. Like I thought that sequence, that little bit of business there was really effective. 
but a lot of it turns into this sort of protracted and it's protracted to you know justify the Sophia Loren billing that's the only reason because otherwise it would be a you know minute and a half section of a different movie but um she just wants a divorce so she can get to Italy with her children that's the entire gist of it and we have to work through this negotiation of George Fapard's character being willing to just sign off on the divorce and just get her out of there and um we go through a lot of hoops to get there. Like, again, it's very basic information that could have been conveyed in a different movie very quickly. But here we have like tears and we have like, I don't know if they were like, if we give her enough screen material, she might be able to get a best supporting actress nomination at the Oscars. Like it's entirely possible. Judy Dench won for Shakespeare in love with like eight minutes or something. So it's not impossible, but um, it's so weird when you look at the rest of this movie, which is fairly focused on, this whole v1 and v2 you know weapon drama the fact it just stops dead for all these sophia loren hotel scenes is just fascinating there's there's a moment after she realizes that she's sort of been captured at this point she's locked in the room with george papard pretending to be her husband and she's getting herself drunk and then she's like doing a soliloquy in the corner as she's drunk and you know, george papard sort of standing watching her do it <laughs> <laughs> and I just think, I, on my second viewing, I was like, why is this here? I, I get yeah. that she's here. You've got Sophia Loren. Great. But I almost would rather they've written a, a scene that propelled the story. And I think this is going to start pivoting into some more problems I have. Is there's moments in the film that just are there for no reason that I can think of whatsoever. Ooh, name some. You want more? Yeah, yeah. Give me a couple. Okay, point the scenes. Um... All of the scenes of Richard Johnson, more or less, are pointless. Yeah. Every scene in the office where he's talking to uh, Trevor Howard's character, who I wrote down as Professor Fake News, because whenever he heard something, it, <laughs> it, it was not correct. Um, and, yeah. And after after our spies infiltrate the base, they're finding out information. There's a whole fifteen minute side adventure when they go back to England, and you know you get some really great explosions. Yeah. Uh, of of houses, which turns out they were houses that were set for demolition that they paid to blow up for the film, and they filmed it, and they look great. Some great demolition work there, um, but completely pointless for the narrative of the film. And it's not like, say, the final sequence where our spies are trying to open the bay doors to alert the bombers overhead. Um, that kind of at least is part of the narrative of the film and it has some tension to it and you're rooting for the the guy the good guys to win. This whole bit back in England is complete nonsense. And you could just cut it out of the film and the film would still get to the end. Yeah, I, it definitely takes its time and I just want to note that they were opening the bay doors a couple of years before HAL 9000 was. So props to them, but uh <laughs> And it's interesting that, you know, No Time to Die, you know, came out very recently to record in this episode and the whole final sequence of the film is basically the same. You've got to open those bay doors so the bombs can get in. Um, I, I thought that was quite funny that they're still using that trope back in the 60s. But uh, yeah, that was certainly an, an interesting part of the film. So yeah, there's all these things that I think were completely pointless in this film that really not only you know sort of ruined the tension it was trying to build, because as we said, there's some really great moments of tension. The interrogation scene. Um, I'm sure there's some other bits I can think of off the top of my head. But it's weighed down by these just 
20 minute excursions into pointlessness. Yeah, uh, I think that's also a note I made, which was that you are involved in the spy mission. Like it's actually, you know, it's working pretty well when you have George Papard um, getting into this compound where they're building the weapons. Like the set design is pretty fantastic. This whole, you know, weapons facility looks incredible. It's all underground. It looks really cool. It has a little bit of a Bondian feel. Yeah. And you're kind of getting the lay of the land as to how it works. They aren't quite manufacturing maybe enough drama in this underground facility, but nonetheless, I was interested in where it was going. And then like partway through, it just cuts to that boardroom with those four or five guys sitting around a table and they yak for quite a while. Then we get the bombings and then we're like cutting back to the spy mission and it was losing the tension of the spy mission. Um, That to me was where the movie began to kind of not work so well was... It just wasn't grabbing me really when we're building to the big climax. It just felt a little too fractured. Well, you're meant to feel like the walls are closing in on them. Yeah. That's the idea. Like, there's seconds from being caught. One wrong move and our, our heroes will be put to the death. Mm-hmm. But instead, we, we leave. And as you say, we go watch the bombings in London. Or we see, like, clips of people going to air raid shelters and people walking around the streets, kids getting hit by explosions. Now, these are all harrowing images, but do they do anything to push the story forward? I don't think so. They established the stakes of what they're fighting against, which I I suppose is important, but I think you could have done it in a briefer way, like show Mm. the bombings, but you don't need the characters sitting around a table, you know, debating what's going on. Like, just show us. You don't need to tell us. Um, So I wouldn't have minded just keeping the bombing stuff because I think it's effective. I did think it was weird, though, that... As you said, like a lot of this stuff looks fantastic, but then they would throw in random shots that were like stock footage from World War II. I thought that was kind of weird. There's actually like black and white shots thrown into this movie. Oh, I meant to ask, how did it feel to be watching you know, clips of just a few, what feels like years ago to you, I suppose? <laughs> Reminds me of my childhood. But mm. it actually did bring a question to mind for you, which is in Canada, we don't have this sort of history tied to us that we see represented in movies. What does it feel like just as someone who lives in the UK to watch sequences like this? It's it's a good question. Um, we're brought up watching footage from the wars. Our grandparents, uh, people of my age at least anyway, you know, were kids in the war. Like they went through this. They lived in London. They were moved out of London, some of them, you know, like the railway children to be rehomed during the war. So I've heard these stories from people that were here at the time. And, you know, and and as I mentioned, Battersea Power Station, I used to live in Battersea. Some of the stock footage is of places in Battersea. So I used to live around those roads. Personally, for me, it was quite interesting to see this film, to see those sites from, I don't know, 60 years ago, it would be now. But it doesn't really, like, make it any more impactful for me because I've seen real footage of what actually happened, and that's far worse to watch than this which is just a dramatized version of it yeah because like i've always been really fascinated by world war ii and i watch a lot of documentaries a lot of films um but i don't have that close a personal connection in that like a lot of canadian soldiers served in world war ii my grandfather did uh, he was in the navy but again it's not on our home soil so you know on my vacation recently my sister and i went to the um military fort it's called uh, fort rod 
in Victoria, yeah, it is. BC. I know. Yeah, it is. They must have been making Fort Rod jokes even at the time. But um, it's a really cool, uh, you know, tourist place to go. The World War II era, you know, military base is just really interesting to, you know, go inside of and see all their outlooks, uh, outlook areas. But the story of it is basically like they built this um, big lookout area for attacking incoming invasions that never happened. End of story. (laughs) At least they were prepared, I suppose. They were prepared. They were prepared, but nothing ever happened. So that's the story. So I don't have that uh, close connection with the history I see represented in pop culture so often. It, I, it's, it, as you said, as I said, it was a, it was a good question. I just, I don't think it added to anything for me. I think to answer, mm-hmm. it. I, I think seeing that footage, apart from going, oh, I know that place, didn't make me more invested in the stakes of this mission because ultimately I know what's going to happen. Yeah. My spies might die or survive, but that does does that mean anything to me? I don't know. And it also doesn't have an air of realism to it, really, that maybe would make it feel more like this happened in my world. Because when you're watching George Papard run around with a machine gun, taking guys down, it definitely feels pretty uh, Hollywood movie-ish. Yeah, and, but then again, I quite liked the ending of the film. I think when it when this film lent into the more absurd things, it worked. Yeah. Some of its more crazier characters, you know, when um, when Jeremy Kemp is playing an officer at the beginning of the film, he's he's quite sarcastic about the whole experience, and that's fun. Um, and and some of the stuff at the end when you know, when they're on the run shooting guns, and that feels more like a a Bond adventure at that point because we're in the lair and everything. That stuff worked, but I just I, I suppose I was just put off by all of these sections that would take the it would do the film's legs in yeah basically that, that, that's how i see it it would it would this film would build momentum and then it would do its own legs in well it's almost it almost wants to have this like air of self-importance which is why you have all those scenes of all the officials talking so much is to really ground it in history and to give it more of that prestige film kind of feel but they kind of clash with a lot of the pulpy adventure we see here you cannot drop that sophia loren section in a movie that really wants to be kind of this history comes alive story. Like it's very soap opera-ish. But also at the same time, you know, you said you watched the trailer for this film and it looked like... Skip through it. Okay, you watched parts of it, but it, it looked like another Where Eagles Dare romp. Yeah. that That is not this film. No, no. Maybe at the very, very end, but for the large part of it, no. Yeah, and that was the stuff that worked for us in Where Eagles Dare. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about one part that I thought worked incredibly well that might be the best part of the whole film. Okay. And I think is actually a little subversive, which is we get sections up front in the movie of them testing the um, flying bombs, I believe the V1s. And initially they're, you know, these bombs that the Germans have have built that look a little bit like airplanes that fly and will hit targets from far away. And, um, we're seeing the, the bombs are angling to the right and they keep testing them and they can't figure out what's wrong. And they decide to put seats in them and to get people to actually sign up. You know, essentially they're drafting people into riding these bombs and tricking them into thinking it's like a, basically a plane, even though they're going to explode when they hit the ground. And we see a scene first off with a jockey doing that. And I thought these sequences were incredibly effective. I've never seen this in a movie before. I was, just riveted to watch this entire project and you have some amazing shots of like 
one of the flying bombs flying over the graves of the pilots who have you know flown these things before. I loved moments like that. And you have this sequence where you have this character named Hannah Reich, played by uh, Barbara Rooting, and she goes up. She's a scientist who's working on this project. She goes up to actually fly one of these, and the idea will be she'll either bail or try to land the flying bomb. And it is so suspenseful. And the movie places you right there with her as she's flying this. And it is the tensest sequence of the movie. And the way the reason I say it's subversive is, at a certain point, I suddenly realized, why am I on board with this character surviving? The movie has tricked me into wanting me to like see this character succeed in what they're doing. When in theory, it works out a lot better if this thing just goes boom. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It also gave us one of the best shots of this film past the, the grave scene. Seconds later, you have this aerial panoramic of a beach where she's actually landed the V-1 rocket and all the German officers are running to her aid. I made a note of that just as a stunning shot. Maybe that's where the money went, but that looked great. Um, I, I actually had a question for you on this topic. Yeah. And I, I know it, it wasn't... Uh, I know she definitely didn't volunteer for this. And I will just say that the person she was playing was actually a real pilot in, in World War Two. She was a quite a noted um, German fighter pilot hmm. as well. But um, obviously it's someone playing the character. But would you ever go up in that rocket? Not a chance in hell. <laughs> I would get in though. I would just like take the seatbelt, click it, and the whole thing would explode. <laughs> and they'd be like, yeah. "Wow, we've never seen that happen before." You really thought he would at least make it into the air? <laughs> the old Smith luck. <laughs> so, I think that's Operation Cross No. It's like my demise would be so sad. They'd be like, don't put him at the grave next to the others. Like, yeah, uh, just put him over there on the beach somewhere. Uh, a little further away, unmarked. We won't want to acknowledge, acknowledge him ever again. No. Uh, I, 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 I think I would rather take being shot for desertion than, than going up in that. That just seems terrifying for a good five minutes before you plummet to the ground and blow up. Well, I mean, the first case we see, it's just like a guy who used to be a jockey who thinks it's a plane. Like, he doesn't even understand mm. what he's doing. In that case, I guess I'm okay, because I, well, assuming I know how to fly at all, I'd be terrified if they shot me up now, because I have no idea how to fly anything. But if I knew how to fly, I guess I would just be under the assumption I'm just going to try to land this thing. Um, but if I knew it was a flying bomb, my God, my God. Yeah, I, I but I, back to your point, I think that was one of the best scenes in this film. And again, it goes back to the point we made in the, in the beginning, and we keep hammering home. This film has some really great stuff inside it, but it's also got this really annoying thing where it just takes its own legs out every 10 minutes. That you, you get excited about something, and then it goes, oh, actually, back to a boardroom. Yeah, and that's so common with you know movies of the 60s and 70s. Eagle Has Landed had a pretty protracted setup to the whole mission, but once you're in the mission all that stuff's gone and you just focus on the mission. Uh, but we, you know, at least I uh, griped a little bit about the 45 minutes of exposition leading into the actual Michael Caine stuff. Um, but like, I remember just recently I watched the movie Midway with Charlton Heston about the battle of Midway. And I mean, holy exposition, Batman. A lot of that movie is just people in boardrooms talking and like pushing little things around on maps. And I'm like, Oh my God, like, I've seen the Roland Emmerich Midway. Uh, I went to see that in theaters and it's, you know, not a great film by any stretch, but 
it at least had some life to it mm. versus like the version that just stops every five minutes for a character to just walk on screen and just dole out exposition by the, you know, <laughs> 10 minute at a time. I think it's time I make my obligatory House on 92nd Street reference. Oh, okay. Yeah. As, uh, as it all, all roads seem to lead back to the House on 92nd Street. There was moments in this film, the, basically some of the ballroom scenes, that felt very much like a docudrama where they were trying to have this... Because the, the character played by uh, Richard Johnson, Duncan Sandys, again, was a real person. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're trying to use these real people sitting in a room with Winston Churchill, trying to make it seem that this was a real thing that was just classified, because you'll never know the real names of the spies. But whenever we go back to those scenes, all of the propulsion, all the energy from the film, all the rocket fuel, if, if we use the, the, the apt thing here, because we're talking about rockets here, <laughs> it runs out. It stalls yeah. and the rocket goes plummeting to the ground. And it has to then try and get itself back up again. And and that's where I think the problem with this film is. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just, I have a question for you. Winston Churchill pops up in so many movies. Mm-hmm. How often does it just feel like a caricature to you? Because that's what it feels like here. Oh, that, this doesn't feel like Winston Churchill at all. Except for one moment. But I will talk about that moment probably right at the end of the show. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, I suppose like... It, I'm going to throw it out to like final thoughts in a second, but is there anything you want to bring up? Yeah, just some of the spy craft in this movie I thought was really interesting. I enjoyed how we saw some of the work that goes into this where they're given their covers and we have scenes where George Papard is just reciting the details of his backstory. It was a way to kind of dole out to the audience some information about who these people were supposed to be. But also it just shows how a spy would probably operate where they would be trained on all of these backstory details they need to be able to deliver seamlessly Mm. and i like that the movie was again showing me spy craft stuff that doesn't feel like we see in every second movie yeah uh, this is one of those i think you would say show don't tell Mm -hmm. well you're you're seeing the spy learn his craft and none of these three spies are trained spies they're just military men that have been drafted into the job so it's it's good to see them training. We shouldn't just have them turn up on day one in, in Nazi Germany and be like, you know, Sprecher zu Deutsch. Like, they, they shouldn't know what they're doing. So I, I'm glad we had those scenes where they were, were learning. Mm-hmm. Although I, I would say uh, George Papad is maybe a bit too good at it. <laughs> but again, he's such a movie star character in this. He does not feel like a real human being at all. No, he, there's there's a couple of scenes where he's just like, he, it seems like he's just watching everything happen. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of uh, Henry Cavill from The Man From U.N.C.L.E., which is the person I reference, where they, they just seem sort of above the film. Uh, maybe that's the movie star in Henry Cavill, too. Were you a watcher, or what sort of impact did the A-Team have on you over your young life? Any? Uh, I can't say that. I think I've seen maybe one episode of the A-Team in my life. I've definitely seen the film. But I'm not sure that's a good thing. Yeah, because like I actually kind of dig the movie. It's it's fun. But um, uh, George Papard was the star of the A Team, and every episode he would say at the end after they beat the bad guys, "I love it when a plan comes together." And then he would usually take a you know he'd have his stogie in his mouth or something. That's the character that I see here. Like when I watch this movie, I go, "That's how he got that job as the leader of the A Team," because you could totally picture that at the end of him just being like. I love it when a plan comes together as the ally bombs land on the facility. Now you said that, I can definitely see in my head a vision of him chomping on a cigar whilst doing it. And that, that, that makes sense. 
And I think he's great. I think he's probably the most enjoyable part of the film. Sophia Loren definitely wasn't. <laughs> Ouch, cold. <laughs> well, she's playing it so sincere. Like, she is... I mean, Sophia Loren, Oscar-winning actors. I feel like she's getting into the psychology of this woman who's gone through a very difficult life and just wants to escape to Italy. And George Rapard is just smirking and just playing this kind of flashy soldier type. It's like they're in two different movies in some ways. Yeah. Like you have the sequence where she shows up and she's asking to see her husband. Papar doesn't want to reveal that he is posing as her husband. And yet he's hanging out in the guy's hotel room for some reason. Um, oh, I know why he was there. Mm. <laughs> and there's the great moment where she sees the framed photo of her in the hotel room. And it's, again, it's like really that's funny great. That's tense. That's, yeah, that's yeah. a good moment. Yeah. Like... George Rappard plays a lot of those moments really perfectly. Like, I think they're funny. I think they're suspenseful. So he brings that movie star quality you really need to ground a movie like this. Yeah, I, I think he's probably the good choice for for the actual lead of this film. If, if we're going to ask the question, who is the lead? I think it's George Rappard, right? I would say so, yeah. And he didn't really want to do this movie. Um, he was working at MGM. He was under contract and really wanted out. And um, they said, we'll let you out if you do this movie. So, you know, like, I don't know how happy he was to be shooting it. But I think the end result is you see a guy who really pops on screen and he works for the movie, you know, the same way. Well, maybe not to the degree of Clint Eastwood or Richard Burton in Where Eagles Dare. But nonetheless, you do walk out of the movie remembering George Papard. I think Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton were working with better material. Oh yeah, I have yeah. to say, I think that's that's part of why where Eagles Dare worked, whereas this one flounders, I would say, in that respect, in terms of the story, uh, which is weird because it's based off of a real life thing. You think it would just work, but it doesn't. It's not focused enough. I think that's the problem. You know, we we've already ad nauseum gone on about the guys in rooms, but just you know, you have that huge lull with the Sophia Loren stuff, and it just doesn't feel as kind of racing along the way that where Eagles Dare does like that movie really does fly through and that was an issue we had with The Eagle Has Landed was the whole like romance subplot with Donald Sutherland kind of stalling the movie sometimes so I think with these types of movies you want to keep the audience kind of braced and moving along I think people turn up expecting a a war film with Mm -hmm. war and action and explosions and uh, this film has a little bit of that right at the end, but apart from that, it's just as you said, a lot of men in room in rooms talking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay, well, I've got like two final notes, so I'll probably do those and then throw it to you. Sure. There's one other cameo I want to know if you picked up on. Mm-hmm. It has a Bond connection. Did you see it? Yeah, Robert Brown, who played M in um, a couple of the Roger Moore films as well as the Timothy Dalton bond films shows up just giving a report at one point it's like a two sentence appearance same as sophia loren (laughs) yeah yeah robert brown should be the the lead actor of this film i think put him on top yeah yeah. he was solid i don't know that he's everyone's favorite m but uh it's always nice to see him the only other thing i had to mention and i don't know how i came across this i was on imdb looking at some of the reviews for this film and i'm not going to name who wrote this review you can go and find it yourself but I may have found one of the worst lines in a review I've ever seen. And, and don't forget, I write, you know, letterbox.com synopses. So I know a bad one when I see it. So they're talking about Sophia Loren in this review. Yeah. She's gorgeous, of course. 
If Audrey Hepburn aroused the paedophile in men, Sophia Loren aroused a fully blown brutish male animal. 1965, folks. <laughs> what is that? Audrey Hepburn aroused the paedophile in men. I, I mean, it's not a word I've ever said on this podcast before, but it just I read it and I just thought, who writes that? And also, does Audrey Hepburn appeal to people who like kids? Uh, oh, boy. I mean, oh, oh, I'm trying to... Sorry, in what movie did they reference Audrey Hepburn? Did they cite a specific movie? No, they're just sort of saying, if, if Sophia Loren does this, Audrey Hepburn does that. Okay, the only reason I can kind of make a connection, sort of, I guess, is I think of the movie Sabrina with Audrey Hepburn, or even Funny Face, where it's like she's very young. Like, I think she's like 18 or 19 in Sabrina, and like the love interest is Humphrey Bogart, who's like 50-something. So it's like it kind of has a little bit of a creepy vibe when you watch nowadays. So maybe that's what they're referring to. That's the best I can come up with. I, I, I'm sorry, guys. I know this is not really connected to operation the best spy film ever crossbow but i don't know that that's just a weird review i thought i had to read it out that is a review that has aged very poorly <laughs> very 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 poorly I, I, i'll go check it it's like written in 2021 oh my god yeah thanks yeah that that's a uh, pretty pretty icky um but speaking just pivoting off that for a second you mentioned this really early on in the review about this maybe not standing the test of time. Do you think people appreciate this film more back then, or do you think it just didn't work then too? Judging from the box office, <laughs> um, although. But what does the box office mean? You know, like box office, that you know, people just people just don't turn up for things that they do a lot of sure. the time. It's not really to do with the actual film. It often has to do with marketing, yeah, um, or even just release strategy. Um, I think it would have probably played okay. But I don't think it would have stood out that much. Like, I think audiences raised on movies like this in that era would have considered it another one of those, but probably not one of the great ones that they'd seen, like, you know, Where Eagles Dare or Great Escape or something. Mm. Okay. Well, that wraps me up, Cam, on the film. You know, have you got any final notes? Yeah, I've got some historical stuff that might be interesting to people. Um, so the V1 was the flying bomb and the V2 was the A4 rocket. So the V1... They manufactured 10,000 of them. 7,488 um, were launched at England. 2,419 hit London. So that was their target. So you can see of the percentage there, the 10,000 versus 2,000 something that hit. Um, the A4s were um, manufactured. There were 6,000 of them. Uh, 1,054 were launched in England. 517 hit London. So, I mean catastrophic um, results, no doubt, but in comparison to what they were manufacturing and what they were aiming at, like what the mass scale of destruction that the Germans were intending to inflict did not quite come to a pass. And I mean, keep in mind, the V1 and, and V2, I'm not going to try and pronounce the actual word the V stands for in German. It's quite a long word, but they basically mean revenge rockets. Yeah. They, they are revenge weapons because of us taking the beaches at Normandy mm -hmm. and making our way through and liberating France. It, this was a, a, a revenge plot from Hitler and, and his forces. But, you know, there's a really great website that I'll see if I can find and, and give to Cam to put in the show notes if you're a Londoner like me. And you can type in your postcode and it will tell you the bombs that went off around you and if your building was affected. A building I used to live in in Battersea was affected by a rocket and partially blown up by one of the V1 rockets. Hmm. 
um, which I just found this to be quite interesting. You can actually see on the building bits of that haven't been remodeled, but obviously were still intact, mostly from the explosion, where like there's shrapnel. Yeah. And that, that that's a cool little bit of history there. Yeah, and that's the thing about this movie. My main takeaway was like, it's it's not one of the great World War II films, but it told me, you know, sort of a story I had never really heard that much about. Like people don't really talk about the crossbow um, story too much. And I think that's largely because a lot of the American World War II films wouldn't be as interested in a more British story like this. And so it's kind of ignored. And I walked away from it going, you know, I really appreciate that this movie gave me some insight into this and that it led me to go look up this information in the book I have as well as online. So there ain't many of these. There's a lot of war films that touch on things like D-Day or the Allied Invasion, um, a lot of the big highlights, the Battle of the Bulge. But a story like this, I think, is really important to carry forward. So I'm glad this movie exists because it actually inspired me to you know, continue researching. And you know, in the real Operation Crossbow, spies were used. They were used to get information out about where the bases were and, and, and where to target. Now, the stuff in this film about the extra rocket that could reach New York and those spies was all made up. But hey, it, it, it's artistic license and sometimes it worked in the film. So I'm all for it. And for all we know, the goal was to create some sort of rocket that could reach the US, but it was definitely not a um, countdown clock like here. No, not quite. Yeah. Well, Cam, I think it's time for the knock list. Is it crossbow or cross no? <laughs> I think it's a cross no. I don't think that's any secret just from what we've talked about throughout the episode. Interesting film. Got some really strong elements that I think make it worth watching, but um, not a movie that's really a very strong candidate for the knock list. Too many uh, sagging moments, too many questionable decisions. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think it's a it's a fun film. It has some really interesting twists and some actual interesting spy work involved, which I'm always happy to see. You know, ultimately, we're talking about spy films here. And when a film does spy right, I like to point it out. And I think it does some of the spy rights here. But I think as a film, it doesn't work yeah. in its entirety. And it's a slog, unfortunately, to make the two-hour mark. It doesn't feel like, well, where Eagle's there. I shouldn't compare it because they're different films altogether, really. But two-hour, I think... Where Eagles Dare is two hours and a bit, two hours and change, maybe. I think it might be two and a half. Close to. Sure. I, it didn't feel that. Yeah. This feels longer. Yeah. Uh, but that's not anything against the performances. Even, you know, much as I've taken to Mickey, Sophia Loren is fine in, in what she does in the film. Maybe a bit hammy and doesn't really match the rest of the film, but she, she's acting. It looks good. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wouldn't recommend this one to people trying to watch the best spy films of all time if you're a completionist and you like war films maybe go out of your way to see it but other than that it's a no yeah yeah that's how i felt i was glad i saw it but won't be one i will revisit many times in the future so there you have it folks operation crossbow is a cross no and as such it is not making the knock list cam what are we up to next week we are jumping forward two years not very long at all because we are going back to James Bond land, baby, with You Only Live Twice, the fifth Sean Connery James Bond film. And uh, I'm going to be really interested to see as we continue the evolution. Thunderball was a little polarizing in our review. Um, so I'm curious if You Only Live Twice follows a similar path. I have seen it once and I wasn't impressed. But 
hopefully my revisit changes that. You know, every single one of the Sean Connery films so far has made the knock list. Is this going to be the one that topples it? Mm, that's an excellent question. Excellent question, because I definitely have a history with this movie as well. So I think it's going to be a really interesting one to talk about, especially because of the um, pronounced role of Blofeld in modern Bond films. And this is the big reveal of Blofeld in this movie. And by the time we review this, I'll have seen No Time to Die. So we can, um, you know, reference that back and forth. Um, absolutely. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch You Only Live Twice and join us next week. So we are, of course, a proud member of Quite the Thing and Podbreed Podcast Networks. And you can find out more about them on their respective websites. And don't forget to check out the knock list at letterbox.com slash spyhards where you can see the films that made it and the ones that didn't, much like Operation Crossbow. There's still some good films in there, just not maybe the best of all time. And finally, don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, let us start at once. Let us clear the rubble and lay the bricks. And let us do so with the firm conviction that we are building for the future. That never again shall we have to embark on such a conflict as we recently endured, I solemnly believe that such a folly would be more than mankind could afford to pay.